Now, fear is going to be a player in your life, but you get to decide how much. You can spend your whole life imagining ghosts, worrying about the pathway to the future, but all there will ever be is what's happening here and the decisions we make in this moment, which are based in either love or fear. So many of us choose our path out of fear disguised as practicality. What we really want seems impossibly out of reach and ridiculous to expect. So we never dare to ask the universe for it. My father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't believe that that was possible for him. So he made a conservative choice. Instead, he got a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old, he was let go from that safe job and our family had to do whatever we could to survive. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want so you might as well take the chance on doing what you love. Hi all, I'm Azif, Head of Culture Transformation and Employee Engagement at Selcom Asiata Berhad. And that was a snippet of Jim Carrey's 2014 commencement address at the Maharishi University of Management. And today, you're listening to Seek to Speak, a podcast that aims to empower expression, spark speeches, and instigate ideas. Seek to Speak. I'm Aisa and welcome to season two of Seek to Speak. And with me today is Azif Mustafa, a two-time TED Talk speaker, kindness advocate, and the current head of culture transformation and employee engagement at Cellcom Exeata. Much like his vibrant personality, Azif has a unique mix of corporate startup and government leadership experience. He was an entrepreneur for a decade before entering an IT-related governmental agency before being headhunted for the Malaysian Innovation Foundation, which he headed for six years. Now he's in the corporate world and in between those incredible full-time jobs, he's an international keynote speaker and has spoken overseas in events like the ISPIM Innovation Summit in Australia. He also organizes speaking events like the Perak Festival of Ideas, which earned an entry in the Malaysian Book of Records for the most number of events held within a single week. But that's not all, folks. He also runs a weekly three-time live interview show on LinkedIn with influential people all over the world. Clearly, he's a very, very busy man, so I'm extremely lucky to have him on the show. Welcome, Azif. How are you feeling? I am great, Ayn. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear all about your journey. So in our first segment, which is the guest guide, we'll guide our listeners through your journey behind public speaking, culture transformation, as well as content creation. So let's go back in time. Tell us a little bit about your speaking journey before being a two-time TED Talk and international keynote speaker. Have you always been this confident and charismatic on stage? <laughs> no, uh, I enjoy speaking. Uh, I enjoy meeting people, especially uh, and then I found that I did have a knack of uh, speaking in front of crowds. Uh, and so while I was working with MDEC, uh, I found that I kept getting asked to speak to visitors and, you know, make presentations. Uh, and interestingly enough, that's when I really improved my Bahasa Malaysia in MDEC <laughs> because I had to make a lot of presentations to, uh, to government agencies. Uh, and a lot of visitors came from there as well. So uh, that's where I probably really started uh, speaking uh, in public a lot. But previous to that, I was obviously in, in our own companies. We set up, uh, started up quite a few companies. And 
of course, in the seek for investors and partners, you always need to present. So those were kind of the types of presentations I made before I really got on stage to become what would you, you would call a public speaker. That's the thing about speaking, right? There's so many like spin-off events, uh, spin-off benefits, like you need it to pitch, you need it to win customers. And for you, it was to improve your boss, <laughs> BM as well. So since having all of those speaking events as well as pitching, like if you could advise anyone or probably your biggest takeaway from your speaking experience, what would it be? It would be to be yourself. I think the worst thing you could do is try and sound like someone else or try and be like someone else. I think when you're first starting out, it's good to kind of have some benchmarks, people that you like, but you can't, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to try and emulate or trying to become like them. So the, my biggest uh, advice is just be yourself and, you know, speak the way you are most comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know you have a very strong sense of self. Uh, first of all, you can't see him, but he has an incredibly cool, like red beard. And I think that's your inspiration for your side hustle, right? Red beard international as well. Exactly. So take ownership of your identity <laughs> and what makes you unique because Azif does. So you describe yourself as like a culture guy and you were tasked to lead the rejuvenation of the corporate culture in Cellcom Exeata. But before that, as you said, you've always headed and led your own team of people, whether in government or private sector. So how have you seen your excellent communication skills helped you in this regard? Well, uh, you know, it's all about communication, really. And as I grew into more and more leadership roles, it became more and more evident that the better I communicated with everyone around me, the better the team could perform uh, and of course, communication isn't a one-way street. Uh, I had to learn how to listen better and, you know, to get more cues from people based on whatever they said or how they said it or their body language. Uh, and I think that's a huge part of communication. So uh, as I grew and become more, became more comfortable in, in these leadership roles, I found that communication was the key component that I had to hone. You know, it, it's not something that comes down from the sky you need to kind of learn you need to kind of get uh, input from people and seek advice uh, I always try and do that to to get better at what I do yeah actually even when you were in the governmental agency you became like a representation of that agency and that means there is a certain sense of duty that is put upon you to make sure that you are a good representation of whatever. Actually, it's for everything, right? Exactly. Whether yeah. or not it's your company, whether or not, especially if you're the leader. But obviously, transforming cultures and perspectives is probably one of the hardest things to do because I would imagine your job right now is very, very difficult. So when it comes to strat strategy and leading corporate initiative design in changing existing mindsets as well as values, what would be your strategy to do then? Well, before I get into that, I think it's interesting to note that I had never held a HR job in my life. So I've had over 20 years of experience in the corporate world, and I've never had a title with human resource in it or culture in it. So I think my company took a, a leap of faith, really, when they hired me because I was not the typical candidate 
who had gone up the corporate ladder and, you know, had done the right things and had all the right timelines in my history. So back to my job, transforming culture is really, again, about communications. I feel the, the most that I have done so far is uh, the most interesting thing that I've done is I have went around the country because we operate in even small towns around the country. We have over 3,000 employees. And I got on a plane and I visited every single location that wow. we have operations in. And, and I, we actually counted it recently. I had actually met personally, face-to-face, 98% of the population of my company. So I, I, we ran workshops, small little workshops, because some of these people are in really small towns where they have like a small storefront. Hmm. And we could only meet them like late at night. So some of the places <laughs> I went, you know, we had to fly in and we had to spend the night because we could only meet them after the shop closes and have our meetings and could only sometimes fly out the, the uh, next day or the day after that because some of those places don't have daily flights. So, oh my goodness. So these are, but by meeting all of these people, I got a huge sense of what our people were about what was important to them and, you know, the values that they held dear. So, and what it did also was give, gave me the credibility to speak to them and speak for them. I think that's very important when you try and lead an organization to change uh, to a culture that they may not be used to. Wow. So you think that kind of process will cannot be imitated online or through, you know, written correspondence? Well, interestingly enough, you know, since obviously March of last year, everything was online. Uh, and I, to be honest, feel that since then we have had even more engagement because number one, I didn't have to buy a plane ticket. I didn't have to book <laughs> hotels, right? I didn't have to spend days and days yeah. away from my family. So I could have more of these engagements and we could actually have smaller groups because previously, you know, when you go to a, a, the capital city of a state, you kind of you know, gather people from various places and get them in a hall. You have to book a hotel hall. You, you know, you have these big events for people to come in. But now I can have these intimate one to five or one to ten type of engagements with, with small groups of people. And and actually these online events, like what you and I are having now, yeah. I can have a, a direct look at your face. I know each and every expression you're making as opposed to me being in front of a hall, right? And I can't see yeah. the guy in the third row. So I don't know how he's feeling. So actually, online engagements have been really, really good for us. We've had a lot of them, a ton of them. And after each and every one, we ask them a question, how we did, my team, we asked them, how did we serve you best? Because in my mind, and I drum this to my team, they are our customers and we need to know what they like, what they didn't like, what we could do better. So every time they give us a ranking and give us a kind of a judgment on how well we did. So I think it's working out fantastic for us. Oh, wow. You really managed to pivot that into making it even more personal if it wasn't already very, very personal. And I like the fact that there's transparency and also this sort of like premium on the idea of listening to the people because like you like you said these are the people that you value these are the people that you want to transform so now that we know a little bit more about you now we're going to go into deep discussion which is segment two 
This is where we do a deep dive on issues relevant and applicable to our guests' experience as well as expertise. And as an expert in innovation, transformation, and kindness, we will look at some of the data that is involved in this kind of subjects. So the first one is grassroots innovation, which I actually had to do a lot of research on because I actually didn't know what it was if not for your TED Talk. So grassroots innovators can be defined as individuals who undertake innovative efforts to solve localized problems. And usually these innovators don't work in like big companies or business firms. And in Malaysia, grassroots innovation is actually one of the few high impact programs intended to empower the bottom 40% of the income pyramid. Some of the things that you share in a TED talk was incredible when you should when you gave light to some of these innovators so a recent example is when we had the critical shortage of personal protective equipment or PPE during the lockdown where many NGOs individuals and even kids helped our frontliners create PPE garb from literally everything so why do you think grassroots innovation is so important for us to inculcate well it's really an expression of creativity and it's a way of solving problems, right? And the more agile people are in solving their own problems, uh, the better off they are because they're not waiting for anyone else to come and solve those issues for them. They're, they're using whatever they have at hand and using their own creativity to build stuff and to solve their own problems. And the interesting thing is the people that we met typically are the, the strange people in the kampongs. These are the guys <laughs> that nobody talks to because, you know, they don't spend time really connecting with the community. They don't go to, you know, festivals. They don't go to kanduri. They don't talk to many people because they're stuck in their workshops building stuff. They're so passionate about that. Uh, and many of them said, this is the first time anyone came to listen to them. So when we visited, and we visited really, really small kampongs in the remote areas of Sabah, Sarawak, in you know, the interiors of Pahang and Perak, uh, and we met people who are so incredibly innovative and, and creative that it would be a crime to me if we didn't spotlight them and we didn't you know, pick up on, on the creativity that they have and try and build it further. So what Yayasan Innovasi Malaysia still does till today is take those uh, creations and the innovations that they have and marry them with researchers from universities and public research institutions and also private research institutions so that they could actually get this, the, the innovations that they develop further refined through mm -hmm. science and through researchers. So I think this is incredibly uh, important and it's a rich source of innovation that any country needs to develop. And since we, you know, need that innovation dearly here in Malaysia, it's it's really a shame if we don't uh, tap into that immense pool of creativity that is in the grassroots. Yeah, it's, it's really untapped. Now, I was actually wondering, how did you actually know of these individuals before, you know, coming into, or did you actually go to all of these villages and be like, all right, let's find, as in your <laughs> words, the weirdos <laughs> and yeah. see what they're up to? Actually, initially, it was really difficult. We had to go to the uh, kampongs, the villages, and look at the the type of organizations that they have. We have like JKKK, the, the committee that takes care of uh, the kampongs. And we made a presentation to them and we said, we're looking for innovators. And invariably, every single meeting we had, the village headman would say, 
what are you talking about? There's no innovators in our kampung. You, you go to the next kampung, maybe you'll find, but I don't think so. So nobody understood what innovation was. So eventually we had to come up with uh, videos and, you know, kind of scenario building so that they could understand, oh, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for this crazy guy at the end of the kampung. He's, he's the one you should talk to. So eventually we got, during my time, in the six years I was there, we had, close to 2,000 people that we met and documented. So wow. it was it was incredible because we went through these journeys that was really, really adventure time. That's really nice to hear. And I like the fact that with grassroots innovation, you debunk this myth that like innovation can only exist in an expensive lab with researchers or in universities. Actually, it is such an untapped productivity as well as information. So speaking about productivity, so according to the Department of Statistics Malaysia, obviously major economic sectors across Malaysia registered a 16% fall in labor productivity in the second quarter of 2020 with total hours worked dropping from an average of 8.5 billion to 6.2 billion hours. Now the National Health and Morbidity Survey 2019 also revealed that close to half a million of Malaysia's population have had their mental health affected by COVID-19. From your experience as somebody who is always motivating and empowering people, how do you best deal with optimizing productivity and mental health in the workplace? Have you been working from home since then? Yes, I have uh, been. I want, you know, there was that short window where we, we started to go back to work, but then the next round came and basically for almost a year. You know, it's something you have to work at uh, and it's something that we remind our leaders, especially in the organization, on how to keep that connection strong. Uh, we already have a, a culture of, you know, morning stand-ups where each team really spends 15 minutes and just updates everyone about what they're doing on the day. So that has helped maintain that semblance of togetherness. What we're launching actually uh, next week is something called the Social Lounge, where we're opening a room on our online channels for anyone to drop in and talk about anything at all. So we've run those, which we call Kita Jaga Kita sessions at the regional levels and we've gone around the country virtually uh, having these conversations but this time we're opening up a huge room anyone can jump in talk about their passions talk about their cooking talk about their cats uh, and that is a, another effort for us to increase the communication channels and just get people that feeling of you know oh, I'm part of this family oh wow that's such a really good initiative I mean like even as you can see in Clubhouse it's booming now because everybody wants that form of social connection everyone wants to feel like they're being heard and that's incredible that you managed to do it on a corporate level because that's really really hard to find and even your standing 15 minutes what would you call it the daily stand-up that's rare for me. I don't I don't hear that a lot unless you're in a social enterprise. Only yeah. do I hear that. So that's really interesting to hear that. Well, that's it's interesting that you, uh, you say that because we try and uh, emulate startups in that sense. We want to become a 33-year-old startup. That's We're 33 years old, but we want to have that startup mentality and we want to have those rituals you know, that really make us more agile in, in that sense. Yeah, and where the structure is a bit more flat and there's less hierarchy. Yeah. And we've done that over the past few years. We actually flattened the, the hierarchy. We, you know, removed titles. I don't carry any title. I'm not a VP of anything or, you know, senior vice president or whatever. I don't carry no titles. None of us have offices. Only the CEO in, 
literally the only person in the building who has an office is the CEO. Everybody else <laughs> is has an open concept desk. So yeah, that's really cool. great. So we're gonna go into your kindness advocacy here. So the third fun fact is into in 2010, Harvard Business School did a survey in 136 countries and found that generous people were actually the happiest overall. And in fact, as recent as 2020, there was a study published that found that while 68% of people thought or, or believed that selfishness was a common trait among those who made more money, in reality, people with selfless attitudes actually had higher incomes and for some reason more children. But despite this, many people are unkind and many kids and youths are not taught kindness. In fact, they're always taught to achieve more, uh, get success. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I mean, it's, it's really, I think, an effect of materialism and also from kind of not having enough. And when people don't have enough, they strive to provide for their families and for themselves. And sometimes kindness gets lost along the way you know because you're trying so hard to you know collect as much as you can i think recently that uh, there's been a, a backlash towards that and people have been have realized that that sort of lifestyle is really not sustainable because we are social beings and we have an intrinsic i think uh, need to help one another and to be kind i think our uh, innate nature is very kind and that we're taught not to be kind or mm. we are we are you know nurtured in a way that we try and be selfish um so uh, it was interesting because recently i had this conversation with tracy rubel and tracy rubel is a licensed psychoanalyst psychotherapist uh, and she founded a global ngo called sidewalk talk and what they do is they sit out by the side of the streets and they just listen to people. That's all they do. They don't give advice. They don't do anything. They just say, if you need somebody to listen to, I'm here. And now they have over 8,000 people around the world sitting on sidewalks on the weekends and listening to wow. people. So they have actually touched millions of people with the work that they do. And Tracy, being a, a, you know, a, a licensed psychotherapist, I asked her, you know, I'm out here every day on LinkedIn because... Supposedly, I'm helping people, but really, I'm helping myself uh, because I'm feeling so nourished by this work that I do. And I, I kind of asked her, is that selfish of me? Because I didn't <laughs> want to be selfish. I want to be. But she says, no, that's ex perfectly fine because that's something that motivates you and, you know, gets you going. And that's perfectly fine. She says, so, okay, so that's a relief to me that I'm not selfish <laughs> by doing this. In your selfless pursuits. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's funny that you brought that up because there's actually studies that show that Kindness benefits everybody that witnessed that kind act. So even if you're just somebody who sees somebody uh, getting donations, it actually lifts your spirit. So don't worry, you're not being selfish <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah for sure. So I, I was just wondering, like in practice, uh, what are the, some of the things that we can do to promote kindness in others? So maybe you can tell us a little bit of how you encourage kindness with your children. Well, you know, you really can't, uh, advocate this and tell people to do it. There's, there's really no way that you can only lead by example. So that's the only thing that I try and do is to make those choices when there's a choice between being nice or being mean, you know, you be nice. And the hope is my children see that. Uh, of course, we do things together. 
they've always been taught since young that we should never leave a place in a condition worse than we found it. So this is like an old Japanese kind of culture. So when we go to the beach or when we go to the park, we always pick up trash. That's something that they know from early on. They know that's something we do. We have little plastic bags in our pockets and we all pick up trash because it's something so easy to do that nobody does. And we never tell yeah. people to do it and we always just do it. But we always see somebody in the corner of our eye trying picking up trash as well when they see <laughs> us do it. So that alone is, I think, uh, enough to kind of promote kindness and promote good things. Uh, and I'm just hoping that my children see what I do and, you know, hopefully they emulate that as well. Yeah, leading by example is so, so important. I mean, as somebody who he has headed teams before, you know that the culture can only work in a specific way if you see your leaders following that or yeah. inculcating that same culture. 100%, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your views on all of those incredible issues. Now we're going to go into segment three, which is radical roleplay, which is my favorite segment. This is where we provide the guests with imagined scenarios where they would have to use their communication skills to resolve. And today we have some student and speaking scenarios for you, Asif. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. <laughs> all right. So scenario one, and this is actually really true. You used to judge a lot of competitions before this on innovation, which typically involved multiple presentations and pitches done by students, participants, youth. So now what I want you to do is I want you to imagine you're at one of those competitions right now in a local university and you just announced the winners. And it was a grueling comp innovation competition with participants spending weeks and weeks preparing for their projects and another three days attending an intensive two-day workshop. And you don't want those who didn't win to be discouraged because you can already tell from their little faces that they look so sad. So after you congratulated the winners, you proceed to motivate those who didn't win. What do you tell them? All right. Pretend listen. I'm them. All right. Guys, listen up. Uh, congratulations to the winner. Uh, but in any competition, there can only be one winner. Uh, but that doesn't mean that if you weren't awarded this prize and you weren't named as the winner, that you're not a winner. Now, everybody gather around and I have uh, something to tell you. When you try your best at anything, uh, you are already a winner because you only you know the effort that you had put in. Uh, when you look yourself in the mirror, you need to be able to tell yourself that you've done your best and you have tried your hardest. And even though you did not win the award, you didn't get the cert, you didn't get this trophy that, I'm, that I handed out, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. The other thing I need you to keep in mind is that every failure is a step toward success. So if you look at any successful person in the whole world, you just point out to any one of them, they would have had hundreds, if not thousands of failures before they had reached to that pinnacle of that success. So thank your lucky stars that you have failed today because that just says that you are one step closer to your success. So chin up guys, you did great. Congratulations, you are all winners. Incredible. And okay, you guys can't see this, but he made eye contact with me the whole time. And I felt like I was that kid that 
you know, I was like, okay, I will fail more so I can succeed more. <laughs> I'm glad you felt that. That was I, so good. Oh, I need to get you on competitions more often now, even though we're online, because that was really, really great. All right. So are you ready for scenario two? Sure. Bring it on. All right. So I have no doubt that you'll ace this as well after scenario one. Okay. So as if you're about to give the biggest talk of your life. Bigger than your two TED Talks combined. Bigger than all the international events you have spoken at. Even bigger than your live show. <laughs> You're one month away from the big day. What is your process like? Can you tell our listeners who are trying to improve from their speaking skills, how does that preparation look like to you? Wow. Um, first of all, what I've learned over the years of speaking is be very, very clear on what the key message is. What do you want to achieve at the end of the talk? So I would spend a lot of time really digging really deep into what is that message that you want this totally important and totally a critical <laughs> audience to get from my talk. Uh, and I would iterate this. I would have different versions uh, and I would actually seek out trusted allies and friends and test it out on them. And I would say, can you listen to these three bullet points and can you tell me, is it important enough for you to spend time and invest time in listening to me speaking about it? And I would really listen to their feedback because I found that, you know, once you have a trusted group of people who you know have, you know, your back who you know won't say things that are not true and will tell you the, even the hardest truths to your face. Uh, these are the people you need to really uh, spend time with. So I would outline those three key points that I was about to make and the three objectives of the talk. And I would lay it out to them and I would listen to their feedback. Now, once I am very, very clear about the message that I want to give, uh, I would spend some time trying to calm myself down as well because if, <laughs> if the expectations are really really high and the stakes are so high sometimes you 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 know you panic and sometimes you are, are paralyzed because of yeah. that fear so i would spend a bit of time you know uh, even though i've spoken at thousands probably on thousands of stages throughout my career uh, i still get butterflies and and i've learned to appreciate that I've learned that it is a good sign that I'm still feeling butterflies because then I'm invested in this process and I want to do the best that I can. But I want to get those butterflies, uh, you know, early and I want to feel them early and I want to, you know, kind of be in front of the mirror with those butterflies and try out uh, the text that I'm, I'm going to give. What I've also learned from TEDx especially is that you really, really need to practice. Uh, and that the best TED speakers that you've heard, the ones with the millions of views, the tens of millions of views, these are the guys who have practiced the most, actually, because they sound so natural. The only reason they sound so natural is because they've practiced unnatural. hundreds of times, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times until it's natural to them. So that is what I would do early on if, if I had months, and I wish I had months for the, for the TEDx talks that I've done, uh, I wish I had practiced for months. Uh, I would also get a coach. Uh, I, this may sound strange for people because I have been so, you know, experienced in speaking in public. Yeah. But I definitely need a coach because my experience in my last TEDx talk uh, in TEDx Kenyalang, 
I was given a coach and his name is Gary Chow. He's a one beautiful human being. And he was there for me to point out things that he felt I could do better. He was there to call out things that he felt I was doing lazily. I, I didn't put in enough effort. And he would just tell me, you're, you're being lazy here. You should have, you know, uh, found better words to use or find better gestures or, you know, use different intonation. And he would call me out on that. And I felt that was so, so valuable because when I compare my two TEDx talks, uh, I felt that I had improved so much in the second one. And I attribute that to having a coach. So I think those are the three key points I would do. Number one, be very clear about my objectives. Number two, practice as much as I can. And number three is really, you know, get somebody that I trust, a coach that would carry me through this period because you don't want to do this alone, especially if the stakes are so high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Especially with the amount of views that you're you're going to get after. <laughs> yeah. You know what I really like about your response is that it was so down to earth and you were so honest about your nerves and the fact that even you, somebody who's extremely experienced, had to practice hundreds of times. I don't know if you had time to practice that many times, but you also had value in getting a coach because a lot yeah. of people feel like, oh, okay, Azir is really good at speaking because he was born a speaker. Like yeah. he's special. I'm not like that. So yeah. I can never be a great speaker. Yeah. So it's good that you say that even though you're experienced, you'll still be nervous and, and those nerves are good. Now for so. TEDx Kenyala, I had just started a new job with Malaysia Airports. And uh, in that company, we, we had offices. So I had, a, I had, a, <laughs> I had an office, uh, but I would stay home every single day for at least three weeks uh, before TEDx uh, and practice in my office with Gary, my coach, online because he was already in Kuching at the time. I was still in KL. Uh, and un unfortunately for the people working near my office, they had to listen <laughs> to me sing, they had to listen to me rap, they had to listen to me tell my speech in full volume every single day. Uh, but yeah, I did practice a lot for that one. You know what's so great when you were singing? It actually sounded like it was impromptu and it was <laughs> fun. And you'd never have guessed that that was the amount of work that you put into it. It was a lot of work, really. <laughs> well, it paid off. It really, really did pay off. It's such an incredible, incredible speech. And I'm so thankful that you have shared all of your secrets <laughs> here today during our session. So what I usually do at the end of every episode... And this could be anything you want. I always ask our guests, why do you seek to speak? And why do you seek to speak just means anything, like a representation of what you do, why you do it. It's basically your why behind everything. So Azif, can you tell our listeners, why do you seek to speak? I seek to speak because I want to leave behind a legacy. I want to make an impact uh, to this world that we live in. And I don't think I'll be able to do that if I kept to myself and I didn't reach out and touched anyone. Uh, I think it's important for me to tell the world uh, who I am and what I am about because I feel that I can make a global impact and I can improve other people's lives. And because of that, I want to reach as many people as I can through speaking. That's why I seek to speak. 
Oh, that's so incredible. I love that legacy building ethos from you. Azif, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be on our humble show. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll be sure to link all of your incredible speeches, the ones that we can find on YouTube. There are some performance videos there as well, <laughs> which I will link in our show notes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it was so much fun. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much, Aini.